Speaking of sentimental, one of the things that you have in your room, and the reason I know this is because we work in, in, in the same chambers, mm. you work a floor above me in a very nice room that overlooks the Thames and the Inner Temple Gardens. Just above the mantelpiece, Pride of Place, is a portrait of Dolph Lundgren. Is that how That's I say it? That's right. Dolph Lundgren as Ivan Drago in Rocky IV, which happens to be my favorite film. And why, why Dolph and why Rocky IV as your favorite film? This is You'll Be Hearing From My Lawyer, a conversation series about women's experiences of making a life at the English and Welsh bar. It's an opportunity to speak openly and honestly about the things that we, as women and barristers, think about a lot and should probably speak about more often. I'm your host, Jessica Vandermeer, and on this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Rahana Azib, soon to be Rahana Azib, Queen's Counsel. You might recognize her name because she was one of the independent members of the investigation panel investigating Azim Rafiq, a former Yorkshire County cricket player's allegations of racism whilst he was at the YCC. She's also a member of my chambers, Two Temple Gardens, a native of the city of Derby. She's a big fan of combating stress through weightlifting, and she's a highly respected and acclaimed advocacy trainer at Inner Temple, where she's also a bencher. And more than anything, I think she is an absolutely great inspiration. In this episode, we discuss her journey to the bar, how her definition of success has changed throughout her career, and how she's dealt with racism and difficult people in the courtroom. But before we get to all that, let's hear why Rahana loves Dolph from Rocky IV. Well, two training montages in Rocky IV, and anyone who knows me knows that I love a good training montage. I think I like the inspiration of it. I like the fact that it almost invariably involves an underdog who's determined to achieve something that might seem unreachable. And they put themselves through absolute hell. They just knuckle down and go through real hardship and come out the other side better, stronger, and successful. And that's what I like about a training montage. And Rocky Four has two. Um, and Rocky Four was a particular David and Goliath battle. And I think that really appealed to me because Rocky was very much physically the underdog and put himself through absolute hell because he believed in the cause um, and was against the most terrifying opponent. And the fact that it was so terrifying, he sort of channeled that into training and making himself better and emerge victorious and was also very gracious in his victory. Um, and I think those are important life lessons, actually. I really admire Dolph Lundgren because he's that perfect combination of brawn and brains. As a professional, he's proficient in the martial arts, but he's also an intellectual. Not many people know this, mm -hmm. but he has a master's degree in chemical engineering. He graduated. Yeah. University of Sydney. Yeah, he was top of his year and he got a scholarship. I think it was a Fulbright scholarship to MIT. And I like the fact that he represents, you never have to be any one thing, that you can't just pigeonhole someone as an actor or a martial artist or an athlete or an academic. You can be any and all of those things or any combination of things that you want to be. Do you know who talked him out of going to do the Fulbright? I do. He started dating Grace Jones. Yeah, yeah. You forget who you're talking to. Uh, do, I, I didn't realize he's got another film coming out. I saw. 
He has many films coming out. Unfortunately, a lot of them are straight to video, but we mustn't judge. (laughs) (laughs) So in this situation then, can we take it that you have a special sensitivity for the underdog? Do you, do you see yourself as a bit of an underdog? I was the underdog. Was? I was the underdog. I don't see myself as the underdog anymore. But yeah. that's after years and years and years of yeah. hardship and training montages. All in my own head, obviously. When did that stop? That's a really difficult question. I've been at the bar for 18 years and... You know, you start with all these fears and insecurities, etc., and sort of gradually they start melting away as you get more experienced at your job, as you get better results, as you become more mature, um, you let things wash over you. So there's never any, any particular moment where you sort of stop feeling that way. I think you just sort of wake up one day and realize that you actually feel that you've earned your place and that you're not an underdog anymore. You are an equal. And I suppose that's where I am now. I feel like an equal. What was, when when you first started out 18 years ago, do you have a memory of, of what your, your, your top one or your top three insecurities were at that time? Ooh, um, that's an insightful question. Um, my top insecurity was not being clever enough. And I still have that insecurity at the bar. We are surrounded by exceptionally mm. clever people. More and more clever people coming to the bar every day. You appear against and in front of really, really clever people. So we're constantly being challenged. Um, but I learned a long time ago that you have to channel your insecurities. It's okay to feel insecure. Um, just don't let the insecurity overwhelm you. What you do is you sort of divide and conquer. You think to yourself, what is it I'm insecure about and what can I do about it? And that's what I'm going to do about it. So whenever I felt insecure about not being clever enough, I work that bit harder. I do that extra bit of research. I reread my papers. I make sure I'm prepared. So I channel that insecurity into something positive. I think this is quite important because you know, I'm, I, you you have the wisdom of experience of of doing this job far longer than I do, and having battled this inse- these insecurities. And I think so. The what one of the insecurities that I think you said that you, you had when you started at the bar was not feeling smart enough to do this. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. And fine. Your your way of tackling that is, um, or was, and probably still remains. I imagine is just to work that much harder to make sure you know everything inside and out. Absolutely. Has that insecurity ever gone away? No. And as strange as this sounds, I don't ever want it to. Because I've learned to channel it to make me better and make me work harder. If I lose that insecurity, I'm sort of a hop, skip and a jump away from becoming blasé at best and arrogant at worst. And I don't want to be either of those things. Have you ever felt burnt out from having to work? Let me, let me put some context to this question. Whenever I see you, I see you working. (laughs) And one of the, um, you know, it's rarely that I see you in chambers and you, you say to me, oh, I'm about to go on my three-week Hawaiian surfing <laughs> holiday, right? Like, 
I, I think in the eight years that I've been here, nearly every single conversation mm. has been um, ends with I'm going to go back and do some more work now. Yes. Or you know the other the other aspect is I'm going to go to the gym, but we'll we'll come to that in a moment. <laughs> so you work incredibly hard, um, which is also demonstrated by what you've just said about you know the the, the way that you train yourself mm. um, with with one of your insecurities is is to put in the time to work that much harder and to know things inside yeah. and out. Has that ever led to burnout? Exhaustion, yes. Probably not quite burnout because um, I am self-aware enough to know when I am close to reaching my limit um, and then I switch off. And actually, I do work very hard, but I have ways of managing it. Like you said, I, I go to the gym and that really helps me. That gives me physical and mental stamina yeah. to work and it's a great stress release. And I'm very protective of my free time in the evenings and on weekends. And I'm probably not great at taking lots and lots of holidays, but in all honesty, Jess, I would just find it really boring. Um, what you have to understand is that I am a typical Capricorn. <laughs> so we are absolute workaholics and we love our work and I love my work. I love my job. I get so much out of it, so much satisfaction. I honestly cannot imagine my life without work. And some people might be listening to this and thinking how sad. And in response to that, I say, when you find something that you are truly passionate about, um, it's not sad at all. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And I, I get bored very easily. I remember one year I took the brave decision to take five weeks off from work. Yeah, I remember your time. Yeah, and I can remember, by, by the end of week two, I thought, yeah, I'm feeling quite refreshed now. It'd be quite nice to go to work. By the end of week three, I was absolutely climbing the walls. In fact, in week four, I just went back to work because I just wanted to be back, be back at work. I wanted to keep pushing myself and I wanted the intellectual stimulation. So I'm not one of these people that does well with lots and lots of holidays and extended holidays, but that's probably because I love my job so much and it gives me so much. And I think that if on a daily basis you engage in self-care and you make sure that you relax and you are healthy, um, you're healthy in terms of how you treat your body, what you put into your body and all of those things, that actually you won't get to the point of burnout and it makes you much more self-aware about what's good for you and what's not. And you, you said that you've been very good at, at knowing your limits. Um, is that something you've always known or, or how, have you, how have you found what, where your limits are? I think I've always known instinctively because I've always been really self-aware. I've always looked inward, so I've been pretty self-aware. And there have been times, though, at the bar, for example, when I've taken on too much work because I've been too ambitious. And that's a lesson that I've learned over the years mm. is to learn to say no. But you can probably understand this, particularly in your early years at the bar. You have this um, visceral fear that you can't say no to anything because if you do, that will be the case that makes you or you'll never be instructed again or Absolutely. the clerks will hate you. Yeah. And it took me a few years to get over that um, and, and learn the lesson the hard way. But now I believe I have learned the lesson. And like I said, I'm very protective of my time and my professional time. I'm realistic about how long things will take me. Um, and I'm also realistic about giving myself sufficient downtime in between cases. As you know, I have a very trial heavy practice. 
And trials really take it out of you, particularly when I'm doing employment trials that are sort of multi-day, multi-week trials. And I make sure that rather than packing in back-to-back trials in my diary, I give myself enough downtime and enough time to catch up on my paperwork and give myself days or weeks where I'm not working flat out from 6am until God knows when. And you do that yourself in the sense that you look at your diary and you just, you have allocated those days, you've set those aside in your diary. Absolutely. I'm I'm very proactive in managing my diary and booking out days for papers or booking days off. Um, and I also sort of tell the clerks to check with me. I'll put notes in my diary saying, check with me before booking. And if cases come in, I sort of find out, well, how much time commitment is this? Um, how much of my time is this going to need? Do I realistically have the capacity? Because the other thing is that I take real pride in my work and I want to do the best possible job on every single one of my cases. And if I can't do that because I'm too tired or too stretched, then it's not fair on the client and I'm not doing the kind of job that I want to be doing all the time. Yeah. Can we go back in time? Yes, yes. yes. Where Where's home for you? Home is the East Midlands. Derby, City of Champions. Yeah, home of Rolls Royce as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And and you lived there until you went to university. That's right. So I lived there until I was 18. Okay. And and what was it like growing up in, in Derby? It's I've I've been there a couple of times because my brother worked for Rolls Royce for a while. Right. It's not very large. Um It's not, which is nice. Yeah. Very close to Nottingham, which is also quite lovely. Yes. Um, yeah, what was it like being there as a youngster? I loved it, but of course it was my home and it's where all my family were and my extended family too. I have a, from a Pakistani background, I have a very large extended family and I was lucky enough to have lots of aunts and uncles and cousins around me. So it felt like a safe environment. I liked the fact that it wasn't too big or too busy. And Derby's great. The people are friendly. Yeah. And what um, what what made you, you decide you wanted to go to university? To I presume you studied law at, at university. I right? did. I yeah. read law. Yes. Uh, and you went to Keem. Oh no, you were at Keeble. I was at Keeble College, Oxford. Oxford. Don't ever accuse me of going to Cambridge again. (laughs) (laughs) I'd rather be a leper than a tad. So you went from from Derby to to Keeble, probably one of the more, um, how shall we say, eccentric physically looking colleges, I think. Absolutely, which suited me down to the ground because I consider myself an eccentric. How, how did that choice come about? I liked the fact, I did some research, I always do my research, and I liked the fact that Keeble had, I think it was um, at that time, the, the college with the highest number, highest percentage of state school students and students from you know poorer backgrounds, um, of which I was one. And um, Keeble's founder, John Keeble, had specifically established Keeble to be an educational institution for those from poor backgrounds to enable them to have an Oxford education. And it just seemed like such a good fit for me and for someone from my background. And it wasn't too Oxford, if I can say that. You know, you've got the grandeur of Christchurch, which is beautiful, and you've got places like Magdalen, but they didn't feel like me. They felt too overwhelming. And Keeble didn't. It just felt like a really nice fit. And how old were you when you decided 
that the law was something you wanted to read. Is that what we call it? Reading law? Reading law. One one reads at Oxford. One doesn't study, one no, reads. No, no. One so reads. I've been told, so I don't want to betray my Oxford roots. Um, really deep down, probably when I was about five. What happened then? From Pole of the Bailey happened. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Harry Mason happened. Yeah. <laughs> I just knew deep in my soul, however corny that sounds, that I was supposed to be an advocate. That was the thing that I was supposed to do. That's what felt comfortable and natural to me. And so the law followed from that. It wasn't a burning, intense desire to study law, read law. Um, it was to be an advocate. And in terms of your, your secondary school experience, I guess I, I would call it high school, um, mm-hmm. Well, did you have particular mentors or anyone who who championed your desire to to go to Oxford and to go to Keble and to study law? Um, I'd have to go further back. Ah. Um, I would go further back to my primary school. I had the most wonderful teacher in my final year at primary school. Um, his name was Mr. Bishop, and he taught all of my siblings and he had said to my parents very early on in the academic year that he thought I was exceptionally gifted. And he'd actually suggested to my parents that I sit a scholarship exam for the local private school because he said that I would excel in an environment like that. Mm. Um, And it was because of him that I did sit the exam and I was awarded a place. And that's where my future was really set. That's where my future started. And I am genuinely, eternally grateful to him because he really set me on the path to the bar and to success at the bar. Does he, does he know what's happened to you? He does know. And he is very, very proud. And I hope he recognizes that it's, um, partly due to his own achievements. It's not just my achievements. Um, but my mum bumps into him every now and again and updates him on how I'm doing. He's very, very proud. Did she tell him that you uh, that you became Barrister of the Year <laughs> at the Inspirational Women in Law Awards? In she hasn't. No, she hasn't. She hasn't seen him since November. I'm still sort of trying to believe it myself. So the idea of communicating it to other people seems quite <laughs> alien to me right now. <laughs> Do you, I mean, do you consider yourself inspirational? I think you're inspirational. In oh, fact, before lovely. you walked into this room, I, I was getting a bit of the adrenaline of like, I'm a bit nervous to speak to Rahana today. I because, know. Because I do consider you an inspirational person, definitely. That's really genuinely lovely to hear. Thank you for that, Jess. I think the answer is this. No, I don't, but I hope that I am. I think that's a very good answer. <laughs> um, and, and why do you hope that you're inspirational? Because if I'm inspiring other people, I'm helping other people. If I'm helping other people, that means there are more people who are set on the path or the route to achieving what they want to in life, to achieving their own satisfaction and happiness. So I feel like I'm making a positive contribution to the world. I hope so anyway. <laughs> I think I think that's all we can really hope for actually. Mm-hmm. Um so you you went to this it's it was a, it was a private school in in the Midlands. 
It was, yeah. I was the, the working class girl from the wrong side of town that happened to find herself in this very grand private school. And were you the only one from, from the, the wrong side of town? Or was there a, a cohort? Or there, there was a handful of us. Um, in different years, probably about three or four of us, very, very, very much in minority. Um, and it was not an easy experience. And, and I don't say that to sort of decry some of the great friends that I made. Um, but it was very, very difficult indeed. And I suffered a lot of abuse. Um, what, what kind of abuse? Racist abuse. I mean, quite disgusting, vile racist abuse, pretty much from when I started. You know, I was only 11 years old in this alien environment um, and started off without really any friends and being bullied and um, called disgusting, racially offensive names um, and teased and bullied for the fact that I was from a poor background and lived in this poor working class area and all those things. So it was, it was really horrible. I remember when I started that I would often come home in tears and say to my mom, I don't want to go back there. I don't want to go to that school anymore. I hate it. And yet you went back every day. I went back because I just, there's something in me that cannot admit defeat and just cannot slink away with my tail between my legs. There's just something in me that stops me. And I recognized even at that young age, what a phenomenal opportunity it was. And, and there was something else as well. I recognized I was not only as good as um, the girls who went to that school, but I was possibly better. So I was going to be better. That was my revenge. You know how they say success is the best revenge. Mm. That was my revenge mm. to be better and smarter and achieve more than they did. Drago at a very young age. Absolutely. That whole sort of seven years at that school was like my training montage. Yeah. And what about that training? do you think has, has influenced who you are today, the Rahana that, that sits here? Um, when you go through a really difficult experience like that and you sort of have two choices, you can fold um, or you can fly. That That's the way I saw it anyway. You sort of endure. Um, but beyond endurance, you thrive. And it taught me just how resilient I can be. Because when you go through a horrific experience like that, at a really young age where you're still growing and developing and you have all sorts of other insecurities, you know, when you're, when you're young, um, it's made me much more resilient. I, I think I have a much higher threshold for sort of stress and um, poor treatment by others. I'm intolerant of poor treatment by others. But it taught me about myself and made me really comfortable in myself and who I was because I refused to conform. Yeah. Do you think at that, that kind of laid the, the, the foundation for not doing the work to make other people feel comfortable in um, difficult situations? Like for instance, I see you as somebody who, um, would not have any difficulty saying, calling out a, a, an instance of racist abuse or harassment in uh, whether it's in a courtroom or whether it's in a client meeting or whether it's just at the grocery store where yeah. you see something happening, right? Yeah. 
Um, whereas I think I, for instance, um, try to like deal with certain situations by, by making everybody feel comfortable. Mm. And that involves, for instance, not calling something out, <laughs> right? Um, do you think, yeah, do you think your experiences of, of being in, in, in these really deeply unpleasant environments and, and having to kind of negotiate emotionally from a very young age, how you're going to handle certain things mm. and how to be resilient and how to just kind of deal with a variety of insecurities from the age of 11 onwards mm. has, um, has meant that now you just frankly don't really take that much shit anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think there is an element of that, but it, it's a little more complex than that because I also learned that you have to pick your battles. Mm. And sometimes it is regrettably utterly futile to challenge or call something out where nothing constructive is going to be achieved, nothing is going to change, and all it does is create more unpleasantness and conflict and I'll give you an example so you know my first I think it was my first or second week at the school where I was just getting really vile racist abuse I reported that to the deputy head and um, the first thing she said to me was you do realize that one of those girls is the daughter of the head of the PTA um, and it was very obvious why she was saying that to me um, and, and you know I sort of pushed back and said but these are the things they're saying to me, um, and it's really horrible, and it's really awful. And then I was told, they probably didn't mean it, so don't worry about it. Yeah, the classic line. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I realized that complaining or calling it out was a complete and utter exercise in futility. And what it would do is it would just cause me more stress, um, probably give the bullies much more satisfaction because on top of the satisfaction of upsetting me, they'd have the satisfaction of effectively being granted immunity by their status or their parents' status. Um, so I thought, I'll pick my battles. This is a battle that I'm not going to win. I'm never going to win. So I'm going to fight a different battle. Instead, I'm going to succeed. And I, rather than reacting to the abuse, I completely ignored it. I acted as if I couldn't see or hear the girls. And, you know, when it comes to, to bullies, when they get zero reaction from you, they don't get the satisfaction of a reaction. They actually, in a lot of cases, get bored very, very quickly and just move on because it's just not, not doing anything for them anymore. And that's eventually what happened. So those are the sorts of things that it taught me too, that absolutely it's important to call out poor behavior. It's important to defend yourself. But you've also got to pick your battles. And there's a time to fight and sometimes there's a time just to well, step yeah. back and go in a different direction. Yeah, take a different tactic. Have there have there has there any anything anything kind of similar happened in in, in the courtroom, for instance? So I'm thinking about um uh, a situation where I was cross-examining somebody and um they kept referring to me as uh, girl mm. or dear or love. Mm. Um, and I can't imagine, I imagine you kind of in, at the very start of cross-examination, mm. all they do have to, is they have to say it once. And, and you would, <laughs> I imagine, have a, 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 a tactic for dealing with mm. that. Mm. How, yeah, what, what's, what's your call in, in, in a situation like that? 
Um, I think it depends on the situation. It depends on the individual who's saying it. Um, and probably depends on their intention or their motivation. For example, it, is it somebody of a much older generation who genuinely doesn't see, see the harm in it and doesn't mean it in a patronizing way? It's just the way they've spoken their whole lives, in which case it's pretty harmless. Um, and I should caveat that by saying I'm not very easily offended having endured what I had to endure. It, it actually takes a lot to offend me. So I let a lot of things just wash over me. Um, but if it's designed to offend or designed to patronize, then absolutely you call it out. But even then, I don't necessarily respond with fire and aggression. Sometimes um, a bit of humor can help um, to diffuse the situation. Sometimes humor can actually um, fire back at the person who is behaving in that way and make them look stupid. I remember very early on doing a trial where I was cross-examining um, an equine expert witness, and he kept calling me my dear. Um, and um, That's how it works, my dear. That's it, yes, yes. Now look here, my dear. <laughs> um, and I just found it really amusing because he was in his late 70s of a different sort of generation. And... I genuinely don't think he was trying to be patronizing. Um, and I actually found it quite amusing, I'll be honest. And every time he said it, I cross-examined him harder. That's how I responded. Um, and, and eventually uh, the judge intervened and told him off as I knew the judge would because I could see the judge getting rattled. And I thought tactically, isn't it much better if it comes from the judge than from me? So I'm going to take the moral high ground um, and look really good in front of the judge. I look really tolerant, etc. And that that was the way that you respond to it. And another time I remember cross-examining a witness, um, a younger gentleman, and he was trying to patronize me um, and called me dear at one point. And I said, I think you'll find that I'm counsel. Did it stop after that? It absolutely stopped <laughs> after that. In fact, he apologized immediately um, and it stopped mm. after that. But there, there are different ways of dealing, dealing with it. And I think you have to, like I said, assess the situation, what's appropriate in the situation um, and what is the intention of the person saying it? Because if it's a sort of sinister intention, then yeah, you do have to deal with it. And sometimes if it's utterly harmless, then I'm not going to be offended by it. I'll just let it wash over me. And I would say there's, even from what you've said, there, there's an additional element, which, mm. which also goes to the extreme multitasking that we have to do in our jobs when we're cross-examining, for instance, yeah. or in court, which is if it is designed to offend, Hmm. Then choosing how it's going to be dealt with, either through mm. you dealing with it or you reading the judge and realizing they're picking up on yep. what's happening and that eventually they will intervene. Mm. So you just have to ride out the storm for the time being. Yeah. Or that there's another option, which is that you don't intervene. The judge, you know, doesn't pick up on it, but somehow. Mm through the way that you're cross-examining that the witness just comes off as an idiot anyway. Mm. Um. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and we have to juggle so many things, but the one important lesson that I've learned is that when you're in court, it's not about you 
yeah. and it's not about your ego. So you really do have to ask yourself, is this something that is sort of important to the case or is it important to me as an individual? Is this about my own ego? Because if it is, I'm going to put my ego to one side and I'm going to do my job and do what's best for the case. In the circumstances. In, yeah. the, in the circumstances. Yeah, yeah. Is it because I'm getting personally offended here? Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, personal offense should be overlooked, but our role in a courtroom is not to make ourselves look good. Um, our role is to do the job for our client. And sometimes if that means sort of sucking it up because a witness is being difficult, actually that can do more harm to their case than it does to yours. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a big believer in taking the moral high ground as well. Yeah. And maintaining your dignity. A massive thank you to Rahana Azib, Queen's Council, and to the Honorable Society of Grey's Inn for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed listening to this or any of the other episodes, please do share them with anyone you think might also be interested in listening. And please stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you.